My name's Liana Berry and you're listening to Art Muse Podcast, a podcast about the intersections between art, healing and creativity. On this episode of the podcast, I'm interviewing Kate Andrews from Wild Creative. She's an educator, an advocate, a nature enthusiast and a big-hearted creative. We're going to be diving into a diverse range of topics while discussing the importance of risk in the curiously expansive way that Kate does so well. If you're looking to connect with Kate and learn more about the work she does empowering children, youth and adults through creativity and nature, then you can find her on Instagram at wildcreative.aus and through her website at wildcreativeaustralia.com. I hope you enjoy our energetic conversation. Hello, Kate. Welcome to Art Muse Podcast. It's lovely to have you. Thanks, Liana. I'm stoked to be here. So I've just done a little intro, but I'd love to hear from you, I guess, more about your creative journey, uh, just to kick us off and maybe your journey to Wild Creative and what you're building. Yeah, I um, I think the most important thing is about the trajectory of creativity. Um, and I know you know this as an art therapist, really, creativity is about listening and then acting. And for me, I guess my journey has been about learning to listen when my creativity arrives or arises and then learning on which parts of it to act on. So the sort of I'm at Wild Creative now, which is essentially holistic nature bonded education, predominantly around like not curriculum school based education. It's actually about emotional mental literacy, body literacy. Um, I love all of those words, but connected to nature because there's so many beautiful ways in which nature can hold and help us uh, learn about ourselves because of the symbiotic relationship we have there. But rewinding in time, I guess years ago, I used to draw a lot and be quite artistic um, in the typical ways. And then I stopped painting and drawing for years. And then after I had my first child, when she was about eight months, I was living in Melbourne at the time and so I didn't have family and was quite isolated. And this feeling of creativity arose within me, this desire to paint. And I thought, that's weird. You know, I haven't wanted to paint for a really long time. And it wouldn't go away. So I listened to it and I acted on it. I went and bought some paints and I just painted. I thought, I don't know how to paint. um, I'm terrible. You know, and you get all of that sort of inner critic, all of those I'm not good enough stuff coming up. And I just thought, just, just follow this. You've got the time and the space in terms of the cool thing about when you have a baby is that the rest of your life actually stops and all you have to do is survive, um, which is kind of handy because it allows you know, for this incredible genesis of of creative ideas that have probably been there all along, but have been lying dormant because we've been ignoring them or not had time or it doesn't make money or whatever. So I just started painting and none of it looked good. It was just literally blocks of colour from the cheapest paints at like down the road at Woolies or something. And then I moved back into drawing and we moved back to Perth. And um, when she was about two and a half, I really, you know, it had grown to wanting to create holistic art classes. I couldn't, uh, class is not the right word. Holistic art experiences, I think, is more effective. And that grew into Little Art Lab, um, which I started in 2017 and um, did for four years. And the coolest thing about that was I, I thought I was actually, I guess, not teaching again, isn't the word, mentoring and guiding the kids. But really, it was the adults, it was the parents that needed it most. And then that was like a, a huge springing off point for Wild Creative 
which encompasses like older children, um, youth, teens and adults. Um, So our homeschool programs and empowerment programs. So, you know, from that one desire to paint, I can see, you know, looking back with the beautiful vision that is hindsight, uh, that's the trajectory to Wild Creative now. Yeah. That's so interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you you are a bit of a musician as well, aren't you? Just from having read your different lovely captions that you put in your Instagram over the last couple of years, I, I, yeah, I feel like I've seen photography and music pop up as like past mediums Lives. for you. Yeah. So that's interesting. You've obviously always been like deeply kind of expressive and creative, but then you sort of see a really strong connection with that moment of immersing yourself in like painterly activity as the stronger connection to the development of Little Art Lab and Wild Creative. This is a really important point because um, no one thing informs your creative expression. Yeah. Everything that comes before informs right now, right? Yeah. So yeah, you're right. All of, I used to feel quite ashamed is too strong a word, but really um, not proud of the fact that I I used to be a professional remedial masseuse. I used to be, you know, a professional portrait photographer. I did fine art nudes. I did fashion, beauty, editorial. I did hair photography. And, you know, I sort of felt like, and I was a musician for years, you know, when I was straight out of high school until I was about 30 and in the grind of the Perth scene, getting absolutely nowhere but loving it. And um, all of those things, I used to feel like, oh, my God, I'm not particularly fabulous at anything. You know, I should be really great at one thing. And now that I'm here, I actually realised that all of those things are actually equally valuable and inform what I'm doing now. My time as a musician gave me skills on grafting and hard bloody work and I'm a sole trader, you know, with some mentors, you know, subcontracting to support the work. But essentially, like, I drive everything. Uh, you know, my years as a musician taught me that. It also taught me a lot about people skills. When you're in a band room with lots of sweaty men, <laughs> you know, it teaches you a few things about um, people management and humanity. And when I was a masseuse, it taught me about the human experience in the body. And I absolutely loved that was a beautiful job. And when I was a photographer, again, it, it taught me about how we feel about ourselves when we have a camera pointed at us because it, you feel like even models or professionals who, who do it for a living, you feel like it's going to capture every vulnerability that you have. And so how you work with someone to bring out and bring forth what the, what is beautiful about them and what is amazing is a skill. And all of those skills now thread into what I'm doing now. So I feel really proud of all of those random things that I used to do. <laughs> Yeah, you absolutely should be. And I think it's so lovely to hear you reflect on like all of the different things that's led to and and supported you in because I think we do naturally just have this craving to have a linear journey. And so we tend to tuck away like the untidy parts of that narrative. And Mm. I think sometimes specifically when you are a small business, you have to advocate for yourself all the time and people are always asking what you do and you try to get that elevator pitch just so it's easier on yourself to try and you're not kind of bumbling around trying to explain what you do especially in sort of creative and um, healing frameworks it can be really hard to like articulate the work and so you do constantly try to like distill it and then you slowly find yourself dropping these bits and tucking them away because you're not sure that they make sense or you societal expectation that the more kind of linear the the better or something I'm not sure what it is and I know you'd, you'd probably consciously try not to do it as well because we know better than that but there's still a part of us that does and like you said there are these little pockets of being a little bit having a little bit of shame or a little bit of embarrassment or you know I don't even know if we can label it with an emotion but having some emotional reaction to having like so many pages 
chapters in our book. But I think so many of these things would be absolutely enriching to your work and being musical around kids, even if you're not actively doing it every time you're engaging with kids, is so useful. Or singing, singing and movement are huge natural innate languages for children predominantly because adults train themselves out of that. Um, or feel uncomfortable you know when we sort of hit our teen years we, we have a sort of intense you know awareness self-awareness that makes us feel like we can't step into being brave in those ways and that sticks with us and that's why when we're probably in our middle age we start seeking to get that back you know mm. um, because it's it's actually cutting off you know cutting off your creativity and and cutting yourself off from actually honoring or seeking all those pages in the book means you've got a pretty small narrow book at the end of the day right I'm actually really thrilled my my book has lots of kind of crusty, crinkled pages with really interesting work, you know, and I feel like I've done good work for, for humanity. Like, I, you know, I feel like I have served. I think professional fashion photography is a sticking point in that because I perpetuated, you know, the body issues, you know, I've photoshopped and I've used that um, as an example in like the warrior tweens empowerment circles around body positivity and body gratitude. That was a really powerful moment to say, I did this, I perpetuated this. When you kids, you know, like grow up or when you're using filters, you know, on Instagram or whatever, it, it, it's it's all perpetuating a non-reality that even though we logically know these are filters and it's not real, it still goes in and it, and it feeds this subconscious um, anxiety that we have about the way we look. But that's a whole podcast in and of itself, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll get you back on to chat about <laughs> yeah. that. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, like as much as I'm sure you have a whole lot of feelings around having contributed to that, I think having experienced it and kind of lived it in that genuine nitty-gritty way, you can present that and discuss it in a much more in-depth way than someone who hasn't been within that industry and is kind of just outside looking in and can see the dangers and the risks. But having actually worked in there and kind of knowing all the mechanisms that happen, I think you probably add a, a you know, significant more amount of depth when you are discussing with your girls and your women and your men and your boys and you know, whoever else is you know, engaging with you on that topic. Yeah, I mm. think you probably add a, a, a much yeah, richer depth to it. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah, the lived experience, you know, nothing beats the lived experience. And photography is so interesting because I think trying to – in, like capture people's vulnerabilities and the layers that make us who we are is so difficult. Mm. I have so much admiration for photographers and I had a really good friend. I remember her saying we both suffer from endometriosis and she was saying she'd had a horror day and she was at uni and she was doing this presentation and she was like, you know what, Liana, no one knows your own pain. And I was mm. like, what do you mean? Like, and Because we were just sort of discussing the complexities that come from living with lots of pain at certain times of the month. And she was saying she had this big presentation to do and she was like struggling like but she had to do it so she got up there and they were videoing it so someone was filming mm. it and she said when she looked back a week later she was like I just saw this articulate confident well rehearsed because you know she poured like all of herself into her work and she mm. just said I couldn't see any any inkling of pain and she's like and it was me and I knew what my experience was. So she's like, how is anyone else going to see that? And it was really like a really powerful conversation to have because I just realised it's just that phrase that we use all the time, like we don't know what other people are going through. 
it just becomes a really familiar phrase and then to actually really realize like for her to have that step away from herself and so I just think it's so fascinating this visual mediums that we have where we're trying to convey something through taking photos of people or video of people um, and how unique skill that is to actually be able to capture some of that internal world and draw it out and um, communicate it because I think yeah there's so much of it that doesn't doesn't we don't show I mean obviously we do show some levels of our distress and our our pain but it's not always visible and we rely so much visually on it so we just think if something looks good then it is good I actually think you've brought up something really important that because I'm just back from the wild village festival and that's a a space where you know women uh collectively gather to essentially arrive at doing the work the inner work that's required to help them evolve but it's incredible what it does to to everybody, you know, when space is held. So talking about being in pain, um, I was watching uh, The Nomadics and Beck, who's one of the, you know, the singer in The Nomadics, said, just announced, because it's like three, four hundred women essentially holding space and listening with every fibre of their being. So it's a really empowering space for an artist to be in uh, because whatever they are offering to the world is going to be wholly received in the manner it's intended because of the, the you know intensity of the listening and the openness of the audience. And she said, I've got to say, I'm feeling really raw the last few days, like it's just blown me wide open. And you could see it. She wasn't saying it and paying lip service. She was, and I I know her, she's a friend of mine. So she's been completely genuine and honest and announcing it to the audience and watching her then sing and the cracks in her voice and the moments of dryness and what that meant for how the energy of the audience transmuted back through her in holding her made what pain she was feeling beautiful. It made her magnetic and beautiful. And the other performer that, you know, is, is I think, plays with their pain is Danielle Caruana, like Mama Kin. Man, that woman is electric. And it's just, it's because you can feel through her body, through her language, through her movement, through the way she sings, she's leaving nothing behind. And that is what makes the arts so incredible and an artist like her so you know, electrifying to watch. You're kind of not sure if she's going to chuck one of her drumsticks at you. You know, there's a certain fear element. And I just love that because it is just, it, it's it's honouring what is true. Like it's honouring the pain that we all have about whatever it is in our lives or our past that we are either carrying or trying to work through. When you're in it, you're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm fucking this up. This is a shit show. I feel terrible. I'm getting it wrong. My voice is faltering or whatever it is. But when you are receiving someone or watching someone and, and w- bearing witness, it's actually really beautifully magnetic and human. And I just, I, you know, I loved that about um, being in that space. It was incredible. Just sounds so uniquely powerful. And I think it's so interesting thinking about artists and obviously we're talking about mus- musicians specifically, you know, in that context, but the space that is available for us to express ourselves. And so my friend Karen, for example, like was at uni and she was doing an important presentation. It's not a space that she felt like she could vulnerably share that she was having a really difficult time and was in lots of pain. You know, she could, we could, we can sometimes do that in spaces um, and own it anyway, but often, you know, they don't feel safe or we've got a really particular drive to get something done and the way that mm. we, you know, keep ourselves 
on task and getting through and survival mode is just to do it and mm. kind of blinker down. The thing about musicians and artists generally is that they intentionally grow this courage and this ability and this grittiness to mm. express it. And when it's in a space like the festival where, you know, you know that it's safe because all of these women are there, it just becomes like explosively powerful. But it's mm. interesting that people have the ability to do it even when it's not held. And I think, yeah, that's what's magnetic about some people is that they, their brokenness they carry with them and they're willing to be vulnerable even when it's not an ideal setting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's why people are drawn to the arts is because they mm. see that reflection of um, themselves and humanity and pain and um, hope and love and all of the things in there. And if people mm. didn't and they just waited for these like little safe environments, I don't want to use the word safe because it's really hard with being a therapist is because safety is really important, but I don't know what the word is, you know, like a... No, I, I feel like safe and also a, an accepting, supported environment. And it, it's our it's our job to create more of those uh, it's it's so important to allow people to, you know, you don't have to do all the sort of intensive deep dive work. There's plenty of ways of doing it by communing in nature or through us in like you can actually arrange plenty of subconscious things, modes in which we can help ourselves integrate what's happening, make sense of it and heal. It, it doesn't have to all be intensive talk therapy, big, big ticket releases, yeah, self-disclosure because I think yeah. people fall into that trap of thinking, well, I want to be more vulnerable and I want to be more present and I want to express myself more deeply in my everyday life. And then they kind of can have really unsafe experiences because there's too much self-disclosure too quickly and people are reactive to that. And it's not, like you said, that you can get healing and support and feedback from art and any sort of creative endeavor but also nature and like you said there's all this subconscious kind of layering that happens that doesn't require huge amounts of self-disclosure and to you know we don't all have to become a you know a musician that puts out as much as their, their work is so powerful but we don't have to share everything with the world and that's that social media thing that's really interesting how that's interplaying with our perceptions of that you know there's some amazing kind of content happening that I see online where people do profile their social media with lots of self-disclosure and it builds big communities of connection but it's like a very kind of fine tight rope to walk and I don't think that it's healthy for people to think that that's the route to healing is to be or connection is to have to have lots of self-disclosure. I think a little bit of it or a lot of it in the right setting and with the right people is obviously really fruitful. But, yeah, that's the interesting thing about alternative modalities of therapy work and healing and being in nature is that, yeah, there's all these non-verbal ways of doing it as well. Yeah, and I, I think also, I mean, I really, people have said to me, oh, you should, you know, do courses online, you know, put your stuff online. And I'm like, that goes against everything that I am suggesting. Like being outside is the antidote to what is happening here. You know, we need to actually get away from the screen, not spend more time. That's not going to fix us. You know, actually remembering who we are by doing something as simple as going to the beach or, you know, walking on the sand, walking in the bush. You can go to the local park and get a green space fixed. I think there is like an and thing going on I talk about that lots on this podcast with recent guests is like it's not an or it's an and because I think people can get so stuck in like well I'm not giving up my screen or I'm not giving up my online this or that but it's well you know it's not an 
I'm an environmental junkie or I'm a computer junkie. Like you're bo- you can be both. We can live lives that are like entwined with all the benefits of technology and really um, absorb all of the benefits and wisdom of nature. And I think, yeah, people can get stuck in the cities as well because they think that it has to be this big thing to go out hiking in the bush. But actually you can spend nature in your park or in your like tiny micro garden on your balcony. You've got access to your senses. Do you know what I mean? If you if you are awake in your senses, all you have to do is spend sometimes thirty seconds. You know, it's 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 how many of those, like you say, micro moments that you know we can build into our day that makes the difference because it will offset what what stress is building in our minds and in our bodies. You know, it's just lots of small moments, and it's trying to just do it in your patch, your local patch. You know, like when I started the homeschool program. Um, it was sort of in the same year that 6,000 parents left schools and I thought, great, you know, this is going to be wicked. Nature school, who doesn't understand that? But it's just not like that, you know, like as it over time I was like, actually, it's about just making an impact with one person. So if one child asks their parent to do breath work with them or teaches them the breath work that we do or they they sing one of the songs, like it's 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 tiny but it's so rich in those tiny moments but we're we're socialized and in our culture and through movies and media everything has to be big huge expressions it has to be huge likes huge comments huge numbers to be deemed successful but really you know success and value can be really small Mm. it can be by yourself and I think you have to trust when your work is trying to initiate all of those micro supports for people and instigate change for people on that little those little levels you have it's so much of it that I didn't expect until I went into the work is how blind you are like you get a little bit of feedback in your sessions or in your facilitations because I know you don't like the word classes but you know workshops um, whatever you're facilitating is you do sometimes some people will be expressive and kind of give you something back and say oh this was really instrumental to me or really powerful but often um, you just don't see it. You just don't see the impact that you're having and the ripple effect. And occasionally something will feed back to you and you'll be like, oh gosh, thank you because it's kept me going. But otherwise you just have to rely on the fact that hopefully you're impacting people, even if it's just to give them an experience of something that will build on in a different experience with someone else somewhere else in their life. And that will mm. be, that layering will then create change. It's not immediate. Um, yes, I, think, I love yeah, the word layering. Yeah, it is. It's layering. Yeah, mm, we think that there's kind of grand, like you said, grandiose expectations and immediacy, but so much of it is kind of slow building and piecing together. We don't always see that that ripple effect that will, like you said, a child will have that experience of doing breath work with you in a in, in a group, and then they might go and share that with a parent, or they might not. They might. Um, find it out again sometime in their teenage years and they'll be like I have a memory of doing this before and it's familiar to me and I want to do more of it because I've had these experiences of it and I know that it's something helpful. Yeah so today I did also want to make sure we spoke a little bit about risk because it's something Mm. that I just thought would be you'd be an excellent person (laughs) to talk to about in so many different ways because having watched the evolution of your business and the work that you do and being in that same position myself is just how much risk is involved in um, and vulnerability is involved in having to try things out and go against the grain, especially somewhere like Perth. <laughs> 
you know, it, it's a it's a small city by world scale and it's quite isolated. There's a really strong culture in different ways, and and change can take can be a bit slower to happen there, and mm. diversity and mindset can be really slow to happen. So I think it can be hard to do something different to kind of burst out on the scene. And I love the way you said that. You can hear the like the delicate sort of footsteps, like there's eggshells right in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Because people love Perth. You don't want to say it wrong. You know, people really um, love it. And, and, you know, it has got lots to offer, but it can also have it, like anywhere in the world, it can have its challenges. Um, But so I see that, like, there's been a lot of risk in what you putting yourself out there and trying to build what you're building. But I also think the work you do itself uh, is a lot about risk. You know, you're asking, A, asking people to step outside of their comfort zones, but B, you're engaging with people in, you know, in a literal way with quite a lot of risk. And I've had little bits and pieces of insight into, you know, some of the activities you do with kids. And they're the ones that people are often quite afraid of or quite frightened by. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, like you do whittling or the body-based activities or even some of your kids I've spotted climbing trees and like all sorts of wonderful, empowering, exciting, enlivening activities. Talk to me a little bit about your perception of risk. Is it something that comes easy to you? Uh, well, I'm not a daredevil, if that's what you mean by, you know, it's a sliding scale, right? I'm not about to do base jumping. But um, for me, like approaching risk is actually uh, a vital learning of a life skill. So, you know, when babies start crawling, they want to pull themselves up to walking. That is risky because they fall. But because we want babies to walk and toddlers to walk and them to grow up, we accept that's part of the risk and that's acceptable. But, it, you know, the, the reason that risk is so important is because it is um, inherent in our ability to actually evolve and, and live, like exist. So there's actually heaps of risk in our lives, driving, you know, like crossing the road, um, those sorts of things, that, things we do every day. But once upon a time, you know, those were things that we needed to have guidance with to be taught how to do it safely. But I think so much of our culture is risk averse. And that is really unhealthy because when you hold children back, as soon as they're old enough and you, it's like the bull out of the gate. Do you know what I mean? They're not going to make wise choices. And for me, um, I guess there's different areas in my work. So let's talk about the kids first. We do whittle, which is wood carving, and we do use knives. And I have a really strict safety demonstration. And if I feel that um, a child hasn't really been paying attention enough for it to be safe for me to hand over a knife. I won't hand it over. I'll hand over a peeler and I'll have a mentor sit with them until they build up to it. So it's about intelligent, you know, stages of risk and and doing it wisely. Um, And for kids, they will automatically, like the baby analogy or the toddler learning to walk, they will naturally implement risks like stages in their lives. And whittling is a huge, a huge leap for most kids because parents don't let them, they might let them use knives to cut things at home, but certainly not to whittle branches and things like that. You know, that's a huge step. So it's it's really, it's incredible to watch kids do it. Um, I actually have a, a cool thing that always comes to mind. I once ran a workshop, Warrior Boys. It was all boys and I do everything outdoors and the the depending on the weather will change the energy of the group and wind makes everyone a little antsy. Um, and this whole group of boys, the energy was quite frenetic. 
And the way I run things is it's following like a Steiner philosophy, which is called breathe out, which is like when you expend energy and then there's breathe in where you come in and there's a centered activity. And I was expending energy and it, but it just wasn't really leaving their bodies. And I eventually, like I have to call them in and I said, you know, anyone who wants to whittle, everyone has to come on the mat because I'm not going to hand over this knife. And I had a big, <laughs> a big knife. You have never seen a group of boys pay attention more quickly, every single one of them. And these are these are kids that teachers will say in class they don't pay attention, they fidget. And so much of the reason is because we're actually not serving their developmental growth. So whittling serves their developmental growth because it's taking risk but it's also being responsible for themselves. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, I say I show them what to do and then I I ask them, I'll, I'll do all the wrong stuff and I'll ask them to tell me why I can't do it. So, for example, you don't stand and whittle, you don't do it on your leg because you don't want to cut an artery. So I get them to actually embody that responsibility before they get handed the implement. And then when I hand it over, I say, I can't, you know, we can't do this for you you're responsible now. But it's incredible to watch boys of all ages and stages and girls, we do it with everybody, but in this particular group, all ages and stages, all types of neurodivergence in the group, none of that mattered. What mattered was the fact that they got a chance to do this thing that was dangerous, but they were responsible for the, their own well-being. Again, not something that we allow, you know, kids to do. We're always buffering everything. You know, we're creating like the cotton wool effect is still helicopter parents. Risk is so important to growing up. I could talk about this for a whole podcast. So I'm going on and on, but you get no, no. What you're saying is so valuable, and yes, that's why you're here. Like I really want to hear your perspective on it and your experiences of it. And I'm so curious around that duality, like you said at the start of the podcast, like working with the kids is ultimately working with the parents, um, or the mm. adults, I should say, um everyone has all different adults in their life but yeah this concept of what still feeds this cotton wool risk like adversive approach and is it because we don't have enough risk in our own lives are too many adults so unfamiliar with it themselves that they don't feel confident because as you're explaining those steps you're like oh absolutely this kind of makes sense you're not just like unleashing like you know 30 centimeter knives to kids with no training like you're you of know, course. approaching it with thoughtfulness and intention and um safety training and 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 pragmatism <laughs> logic <laughs> you know yeah it's actually for me it's about balancing all the kind of mother earth side of of me and what i offer it's about balancing like spirituality and practicality and science actually are two sides of the same coin that's why it's so cool breath work we breathe every day. It's it's a practical thing that we have to do to stay alive. But when there's intention brought to it, it becomes a spiritual, meaningful experience. Like I love that duality of everything. Um, can I talk about one more thing about risk, about tree climbing? Because yeah, absolutely. The, the tree climbing thing is, is huge because when you allow a child to explore climbing a tree you are allowing them so allowing is a big word here they you know allows them to listen to their instinct um, it means they set their own challenge and usually kids like I was saying before are great at setting their own because they understand what they need same way that we do um, they'll experience a huge sense of achievement because no one else has set the parameters or done it for them it's navigating risk it's navigating their own fear response you can't get down a tree when you're crapping your dax. You actually have to really slow down and ground yourself. Now, that 
that one thing alone, that is self-regulation. It's what every human being wants to master, wants children to master, right? Um, so they have to problem solve and they have to use critical thinking. And that's so, you know, these are words, but critical thinking is the capacity to evaluate your options before you choose them. This is huge for kids. This is a massive life skill. Um, it builds physical stamina and strength. Um, and it means, the beautiful part of it, it means that we are trusting them enough to do something like this. That, Like I was saying about the Whitling, that sense of self-responsibility, that's what they want. Kids want to grow up. They don't want to be dependent on an adult. Who would want that? You know, so climbing trees, Whitling, experiencing risk in a supported environment means they learn the skills you know, to actually risk assess well when they're older. Do I want to go at 180 in the car? Probably not. You know, like I remember doing a workshop once and the person who ran it just said, you know, we stop kids from taking risks and then they get behind the wheel of a car. Now, if if you haven't practiced good risk assessment and then you get behind the wheel of a car and you're full of alcohol or testosterone in particular, there's plenty of research around how young men do crazy things in cars you know, and that's because, you know, boys and men in particular have a, a really primal drive to take risks. Like that hunter-gatherer, like we are still actually biologically wired that way. But that that part in them doesn't get honoured or fed. That cup does not get filled. And they end up angry young men. I mean, we would too. All of us experience things in relation to our cycle as women. But we are still, we're only really in a culture that is starting to really break out and express that. You know, I love, and this is, I love that we're talking about this going from whittling to climbing trees to periods. It's really cool. And car, this is my kind of podcast, Liana. I'm loving it. You know, but it's so important because us being able to say, yeah, this is how I'm feeling right now. I'm not capable of doing that. You know, that's self-care. That's self-compassion. And we have a right to to be able to actually honour our bodies and our personal experience because it's real. The cycle in you, just last Lucy Peach, she is all over that. She is yeah. someone that everybody needs to see and listen to. If you haven't checked out Lucy Peach, absolutely check her out. So she's a do it Perth lady, yeah, musician, educator, speaker, writer. She's an author. She's got an amazing book. But yeah, yeah it'll change your period life. queen. Mm. Yeah. It does, and and it it really you know allows you to honor what is happening within that cycle. Let's face it, we've been living in a culture that is. Um, that says, you like you said earlier, you have to push through. Women aren't actually built to keep going in a straight line. We're built to go with the fluctuations. There's curves, there's peaks and troughs. Everything is round, flexible, ever moving. We can't honour so much of that. We're stuck in these rigid, you know, boxes or lanes that we put ourselves in and then we wonder why we get sick or we're so bloody miserable. That rigid, that rigid structure and, you know, it has its benefit in certain places, but too much of it and too much control across both, you know, across populations of multiple people that we're talking about, um, you know, people with cycles and we're talking about boys and their testosterone and their risk-taking. It's like it, it does the same thing. It kind of keeps you in a narrow space, performing a certain way, performing to an expectation, living to an expectation within a system. But what it, like the flip side of that is is it detrimental to so much you know because mm. like that, that those innate needs and abilities are really squashed and so i think yeah kids do have have that innate drive to take risks and like you said it, yeah it's really interesting hearing you um, share about 
how much skill building and how much learning happens if you facilitate that and you're walking alongside them so you can help keep it as safe as possible when you're there supporting them but if you resist it resist it resist it avoid 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 and then they get to an age where they have independence regardless of you watch out (laughs) yeah what happens yeah yeah yeah, it's kind of like interesting because it's like this perspective that you're adding in something dangerous. But really what you're adding in is so is such a gift because you're giving mm. the kids multiple skills around like, you know, self-regulation and empowerment and mastery, but you're giving them the ability to assess and recognize what their needs are and what their capacities are. And like, yeah, if we're talking teenage kids, teenage boys, that is what you want your teenage boy to have is, is that self-assessment. And they're obviously still going to get wrong and go awry and get led the wrong way but but if you know where the line is you know what I mean like it's boundarylessness almost when when everything you've been wrapped up and protected or stopped it's you know there's a lack of kind of edges where are the edges and if you don't know where the edges are you generally go a little bit yeah you look for them we're constantly trying to feel out the edges of ourselves I mean that's what children do people get so um, reactive to to kids when they have big feelings but often when you dig underneath like what the presentation is it is they're just looking for the edges of themselves and the edges of relationship and all sorts of things and so yeah when we do that throughout our whole lives I mean we try to avoid it a lot of the time but yeah teenagers are going to try and feel out like where is my where are the boundaries of me where are the boundaries of the world and my friendship and what how how far can I push myself? You know, athletes do it all the time. Like, how far can I push myself? Mm. The difference between doing that with some sense of consequence or some sense of self-knowledge around your capacity versus having no idea yeah. no and no sense of self or anything or in it becomes very dangerous. Yeah, and you think about, you, you take that list like that I, I had about climbing trees, the capacity to evaluate, the capacity to ground yourself, self-regulate, self-assess, be responsible for yourself, the sense of achievement. All of those translate into healthy relationships and friendships. Do you know what I mean? If you know what you're capable of, you know, like there's, there's so much inherent in just climbing a tree or whittling a stick or something else that is has a, an element of risk because you are challenging yourself, finding your own edges. So you have a baseline with which to start from. That's why it's holistic, like it's all connected. It makes so much sense in my mind. I hope it's translating to your listeners because it's 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 so obvious to me how how it is all connected. Lovely because it's also a social element that happens. Like you'll, you'll work mostly in groups of people and kids and it does translate into that relational setting because they will figure out, okay, I need to ask for help. I'm stuck or I'm scared. Like whether I ask an adult for help or whether I ask another kid what they think. or And you will see so much interaction in happening with children outside of a rigid environment because there's so many other variables at play and there's so many different needs going on and you'll see them kind of processing and trying to figure out and exploring how to respond to the fact Mm. that someone is like three branches higher in the tree than them and they're not going to be able to get there and so how does that feel and how do I relate to that person versus someone sitting at the bottom of the tree and they need some quiet time by themselves how do I respond to that, you know? And it can get messy. It can absolutely get messy, but it's like this learning process that can happen socially as well and there's this awareness of not everyone being in the same or needing to be in the same level and in more traditional academic settings and 
um, you know, I haven't been in school for a long time and I don't have any, I don't have any children. So I don't have a really, don't want to speak too much to what I don't know. But my perception is that some of the school environments are still very much trying to get everyone performing to a certain level and there's a standard to meet. And there's not that kind of embracing of the variability that you get when you're out in nature and you have these more dynamic group settings. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of kids really struggle with that concept of I'm not good enough because I'm not meeting that academic expectation or that behavioural expectation of me to sit in a chair and work a certain way. And like you were saying, like you come across so many kids and I'm the same, where they have different ways of learning that in more kind of institutional settings can seem not good enough, basically. (laughs) Um, And that can completely change when you have a more dynamic natural setting and they're in nature and you're speaking to their interests and they're able to learn to regulate themselves and apply their strengths. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a major topic. It's, you know, it's like 10 podcasts, this one. Yeah, I really feel like the school systems that are available, even the the more alternative or gentle sort of ones, they still have to deliver the curriculum. The schools still need to receive their funding, which means they have to get a certain percentage of students present, you know, in attendance and over the line. But I think what, what we're doing is putting children in environments where they're not designed to help them thrive. Not only is it not honouring the different, many different ways that we learn, um, and I I was one of them, you know, like I was a child that learnt through doing. I'm a practical, hands-on type of kinesthetic learner, experiential learner, Um, and I I tried my best at being a rote learner because that's the way I was taught you're supposed to learn and take in information and was devastated in year 12 when I didn't do too well because I had actually tried extremely hard, was really determined. And you do, you feel like there is either something wrong with you, you are less than, your self-worth, your self-esteem suffers. That doesn't stop at the end of school. That brands you for your life if you don't do the work. You know, so you go, you're sending kids into the world who have this untrue sense of themselves. Jeez, I'm not, I'm not very smart. I, was, I said that for about 20 years. I'm not smart. I'm not academically capable and I didn't feel it. Um, you know, hence the arts are a one, you know, an absolute wonderland of incredible personalities and differently gifted human beings because that is a space where they can you know, express that side of themselves in a supported way. But the school is, is it's a narrow band for, a, for an incredibly diverse group. It's an ecosystem of humanity and we're trying to squeeze it into a tiny space. It's, it's, we're not going to get kids that are going to thrive and come out feeling like they have something to offer the world, feeling like they are of value. This is profound, you know. It's like a lens through which they view themselves in the world forever unless they change it. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can't kind of yell it loud enough, really. It's encouraging to see lots of people, more and more people looking for options suit their children. Because that academic space and that kind of rigid structure does suit some people. Um, for sure. Some kids, you know, they thrive in that space. But it's about having more options for the people that, and the kids that don't fit in there and their needs so vastly different. And because it's a life trajectory, like you're influencing, you, you know, there's so much potential to... Um, have a different impact on people's development of self and and you know parents there is an incredible anguish with parents because they can see that their child isn't thriving or is struggling in an environment 
where they're, they're just, it's not right for them, for who they are. Parents know their children, but their homeschool is too much, you know, of a, a shift to the left because it, it means they have to assume entire responsibility for their child's education, which is completely overwhelming. I remember being overwhelmed by it myself. It felt like a ginormous leap. And, you know, many parents don't make that decision because it's too big and they need to keep working. And I mean, the word homeschooling is a, it's a misnomer. It should be life schooling. A lot of people, you know, you don't want your kids at home with you. You actually want to enrich their lives by being in the community and connecting with other people. It's not a minimalist lifestyle. It's actually an expansive, much more expansive and varied existence. And a lot of people Um, don't, unless they have that direct experience, don't see that. And I would love for that to change is more understanding of um, mm. what homeschooling, life schooling, what what actually that actually looks like and yeah I think that's the wonderful thing about the programs that you offer is that there are so many things that you can engage children with Um, they're not just at home isolated and yeah there's all of these stereotypes that still need to be broken down Um, and that's Mm. a big conversation I feel like homeschooling is another podcast that's another one (laughs) but I might just start writing a list I'll be like Kate's my advisor for the different podcast episodes we're going to do one on um creativity and homeschooling (laughs) because I think yeah it is such a rich exciting topic I mean I was certainly one of those people had no idea what was involved in the community and you know the different approaches and the richness that could come from that pathway until I started meeting kids who were um, engaged in that level of education through my work and then I was sort of chatting to families and just realized yeah there's so much diversity and so um, so many different options and yeah it's a really exciting space and I hope that Mm. it continues to grow and people feel empowered to navigate Mm. it yeah it's just changing your perception of what education looks like or can look like you know we're we're still so indoctrinated as to it's got to be sitting at a desk and paying attention and looking at the person that's talking you know in my groups it's like and and with my kids with other people's kids you will think they are not listening and it's not going in and at the end of the day they'll bring everything back out at you and it's all gone in you know I can listen to you without looking at you right you know I can take it in even though I'll be standing up and walking around the room I can still take it in I think we are just driven by fear so much of it is driven by fear like we're talking about risk and so much of risk aversion is about fear and you know I think we just need to validate that it's okay to be um afraid I mean that's important in any process because if you're afraid you're questioning you know you you can question you can be curious and I think that's what it comes down to is some of the resistance or uncertainty about alternative education offerings is this this fear of well what if I get to the end of it and my child's not equipped to Mm. um, engage with the world and they're not they're not able to do what they want to do you know, and it's just it's just fear, isn't it? Like I don't want to homeschool my child because I I'm afraid I'm not not good enough to do it, and they might get to the end of it and want to be a doctor, and they're not able to go on that training because I haven't fulfilled the obligations to get there. You know, like whatever it is, or it's yeah. just it's. And I think collectively we need to get better at sharing our fears and speaking about it and approaching it with curiosity, and then challenging mm. it where it needs challenged and stepping over it and into the space of risk because with risk there is always you're never going to be able to control the outcome sometimes the outcome is incredible and it's effective and it pays off we get where we um what we hoped for and sometimes with risk it doesn't work we try and whittle a stick and it snaps in half three quarters of the way through our hours session well that's a life lesson isn't it sometimes it just doesn't work out 
Actually, you know what I love about fear um, and anxiety? That There's a woman called Karen Young who runs incredible workshops around um, predominantly youth anxiety. And she talks about how our brains are wired to obviously fight, flight, freeze. They're always scanning for danger. But the, she said the flip side of that is that your brain is alerting you when you feel fear, that you're about to do something brave. And I absolutely loved that framing of it because so often with fear and anxiety, we want to stop it and we want to push it away. And I think in our work that we do, like you said, it's actually about recognising it and leaning into it and walking through it because you're going to be okay. We've actually got the skills to survive failures and mistakes, but we're you know living in a society that says, no, 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 you don't want to feel that. But it's actually vital, another vital life skill. If you're constantly afraid of fear itself, you're going to really live a small life, you know, like you're going to shrink. You're not going to expand and explore. So we should probably, I should probably start to think about how we'll finish up our conversation. I like to finish with the same three questions for each of my guests. So my first question is your go-to nurturing and creative activity. Oh, the ocean. It's not really an activity, is it, per se? Like I think, yeah, the ocean is actually, I love the metaphor and the symbol in nature. So when I'm having a hard time especially, you know, the ocean is a wild place and it changes all the time, much like our inner landscape. So I love the metaphor of when I'm faced with some waves, it's like, what are you going to do, Kate? Are you going to run back to shore? Are you going to time when you go under the wave? Are you going to get smashed through it? Are you going to go over it? You know, like it's all metaphoric sort of expressions of the choices you can make in your life. Um, and I love that about the ocean. I also cannot be in a bad mood in the ocean. So if I'm grumpy or if I'm feeling stuck, if I'm feeling sick, you know, like I feel like salt water, that the energy and the bigness of the ocean, it fixes everything for me. So that's where I go. Yeah, there's a reason they used to send hospital patients and things to the seaside <laughs> to yeah. that was a prescribed treatment you know for a long time yeah. where did that go you know I know that like forest bathing seems to be making a comeback which is pretty cool yeah this is this interesting thing that we are co- which is great we're coming back like I'm not arguing about coming back full circle but this concept that we're now people are now trying to find you know scientific evidence and knowledge for nature and nature's application in our life but we where do you think we came from like what are we made out of you know like we are part of nature we are creatures you know regardless of whether you're like what your faith and belief systems are physically we're part of an environment we're made up of atoms and molecules and substances water yeah and we're born of the earth and will die into the earth like it's this um crazy thing that people have to kind of try and convince the population that nature benefits us but we actually are part of nature it probably comes back to fear right you know like it it can't be real just because i feel it or someone else feels it it has to be quantified to to make it real it has to be proven to be of benefit you know yeah we, we lack a lot of trust in our intuitive selves i think because yeah, intuitively we'll go for a walk or we'll stand outside in the sun or we'll look at something green or, you know, we'll do that intuitively, but we will question that response, you know, when it's brought into our consciousness. And it's um, it's a shame. Yeah, because it kind of, we're trying, it's like we're trying to erode all the wonderful mystery. It's like we have to explain everything. And I love that there's still lots of parts of the human brain that scientists can't 
you know, define. And, you know, what's that wonderful? There's a wonderful quote about how our cells are like 90% of stuff they don't know about and 10% stuff they do. And I'm like, right there. That says about how incredible we are. Like that, the, the unknown is what makes life magical. It's, it's what creates an energy response when you look at someone that you don't know from across a room. You know, it's all that unspoken. We're always trying to just define it all. Yeah, I find it really comforting actually. And the ocean is an incredible metaphor and teacher and salve. And yeah, just yeah, it's lovely to hear that you get in there so often. And I think it's just that journeying to get to the ocean and then not knowing what it's going to look like, whether it's going to be super rough or super calm or what sort of sea creatures you might happen upon. <laughs> okay, the next question I was going to ask you is if you have a like a, a barrier to your creativity or even your business, like whichever approach you want to make, but is there something that you struggle with that you have any sort of little tips or just sharing how you approach it? That is a great question. My immediate answer is time, but that's not something I necessarily put in my way. Um, I, you know, the hardest thing about mothering, working, life schooling, creativity and, and the kind of work that I'm putting out into the world, creativity requires space and time to percolate, you know, to grow. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's like seeds of ideas that require time to germinate and you need to walk around that in your mind and consider it, you know, and so I'm short on time for those, that sort of richness of it. But I think um, going back to what I was saying about my my feeling about myself and the value of what I had to offer after being in the school system for really, really like, yeah, 20 years, like I felt dumb or less than. I felt really intimidated by people that not necessarily had degrees because a degree is not necessarily a uh, yeah, representative of intelligence. But I think back then that's what I was, you know, that's what you're raised to think, right? You go to university and you get these degrees and it, it means that you are something. I think for too long I, I placed a value on that instead of actually recognising that through my perhaps slightly off the beaten track experiences and working life was actually informing a perfectly okay person and that was a perfectly acceptable way to be and to live and to appreciate the diversity with which I was actually offering like gifting myself without realizing it I was actually following my interests and my interests human interests are varied like fancy going from massage to photography to you know being a musician to homeschooling, you know, parenting, like all of these are pretty diverse things. And I'm glad that I can now see that and go, yeah, those are pretty cool things. And, you know, hope I don't sound arrogant doing it. It's it's about ownership. Yeah, wonderful. I think, yeah, I think sharing it is really, it can give other people permission. So I'm glad that you're sharing it doesn't sound arrogant at all. The question I had was just a fun one is, do you have any, like, what is one of your creative dreams or wishes at the moment? It can be anything. Ooh. There's no expectation. Yeah. yeah, that's right, for it to come to fruition. Um, I would really, I'd love to, uh, I guess on a, on a personal, professional level, I'd love to keep offering my empowerment circles to tweens. So the tweens is like an 8 to 12-year-old bracket and I feel like in our society there's a lot of understanding of teenagers needing support and mental health, you know, help and guidance. But I really feel like there's actually a wonderful you know, sort of opportunity. This is like this golden window of opportunity with the eight to 12 year old bracket. It's sort of the idea that I guess adolescence is a bit like a race because that's where things are intense and you don't not train for a race. 
You don't just get there and then start warming up. So the idea between my, you know, with my empowerment circles for the 8 to 12-year-old bracket is really to to place ideas about mental, emotional, physical and spiritual health, you know, laying down the foundations of them so that they are not foreign concepts when puberty hits because when puberty hits, you're not as connected to your family. That's the time when you start looking away and looking out and you're seeking different answers and opinions and ideas as you explore your sense of self. I would really love to grow that side of it. I'd really love to grow, you know, and explore different avenues like doing more retreats and festivals uh, because it's just about reaching those groups, like those small groups, but just in a wider, you know, way, if you know what I mean, like in different environments. Um, I absolutely loved my time at the Wild Village Festival and I did Whitling for Fierce Self-Compassion for 50 women and that was just so transformative. It was it was really cool because for the same reason that kids are like, whoa, a knife, like so uh, adults, you know, that, that yeah. like you were saying before that, you know, do we have a, a more comfortable relationship with risk when we take them ourselves? You know, and the idea like women have actually been creating and using their hands in a craft, you know, crafting way, you know, for thousands of years. And I love the way that something like Whitling is both communing with nature, communing with yourself, you know, the experience of using a knife and it it kind of ties you back to that primal sort of space where women gathered. It just feels like coming home. Um, That's really powerful. I'd love to do more of that work too. Yeah, that's really exciting, I think, planting those seeds and, you know, spreading that experience and, like, we go back to that conversation of just giving people micro experiences. So being able to work Mm. with more people and just give them that experience of yeah coming home and connecting with their creativity and their body and yeah their risk you know their ability to tolerate something different and yeah using knives because that's going to be fun (laughs) it is cool it's very cool yeah Yeah, definitely cool status (laughs) with whittling i hope to make it to one of your things one day it's yeah when experience your wisdom in person would be lovely Well, thank you, Liana. Well, thank you so much for the chat today. And, yeah, I really appreciate you making the time in your busy schedule from your family and also... Oh, you make me sound totally corporate. I would make time to chat to you anytime. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, corporate. I shall have to <laughs> I shall have to work on <laughs> my busy schedule. Excuse me, darling. I've got a festival. Um, no. <laughs> no, but life is like chaotic and messy and beautiful, obviously, but it can be hard to juggle all of those things sometimes and just find a quiet and I know you've worked hard to find a quiet space today, is what I'm saying. Thank you for the acknowledgement. Yeah. Always logistics. Thank you so much for listening to Art Muse podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, then please like, share or follow on whichever listening app you use. If you want to keep up to date on social media, the best place to find us is on Instagram at artmuse underscore podcast. Music